another episode of Inside the Recording Studio. I am Jody Whitesides, and with me as always is Mr. Chris Hellstrom. Good morning, Jody. Good How are we morning. doing? I'm doing okay. Yeah? yeah? Just okay? Just okay. Yeah. Okay is good. Yes. Fair, I guess. Right? Fair. Yeah. Good. Well, I'm doing good. I'm excited because we're going to talk about a little bit of a nostalgia trip, but also examine how far we'd come and an appreciation for the past, I suppose, for this episode. <laughs> Not in regards to this podcast, but in terms of synthesis. Right. So essentially what you're not going to do is sit here and yell like an old man at the cloud. Oh, I hope I never become that. I probably have. will. You've done but it in I past know. episodes. You've done it already. I know. Yeah, it's a sad state of affairs. I really don't want to be that guy mm-hmm. because who wants to be that guy? The grumpy old guy. <laughs> but we're going to talk about the Mini Moog today. Yes. And the Mini Moog is a synth that CJ Vanston brought up. He did. When we, we, we chatted with him and how it was one of his first synthesizers that he owned. And we... Th- Sorry. There you go. <laughs> See, that's just too much fun. It is. Right? Yeah, I mean, it is really the first portable synthesizer. Now, I want to stress that, that I said synthesizer, not keyboard, because there obviously there were Hammonds and things like that, but the first synthesizer that was portable. Didn't Hammonds require a truck to cart around, though? Yeah, but that probably <laughs> was— Don't they still e- require that? If you got the Leslie cabs and everything, that sure. doing, yeah, well, like John Lord style of Deep Purple rock in <laughs> that thing. It was awesome. Well, it was also uh, CJ was mentioning the fact that he had to cart a bunch of giant stuff around too. So. Yeah. Well, you know, all musicians start by carting gear at some point, don't we? There was the, obviously the huge wall modular system available before this. Mm-hmm that besides sitting in universities and, and places like that. You know, or in primarily. the background of a dead mouse. Is that how you pronounce his name, dead mouse, or is it dead mouse? Yeah. Dead mouse. No, it's, yeah, but, but now, now you're jumping forward, I don't know, about 50 years, right? Yeah, <laughs> so. no, but I mean, he does that master class, and he's got that just gigantic wall of synthesis, essentially. Yeah. Well, yeah, modular synthesis has had a huge resurgence mm-hmm. the last – I don't know, probably 10 years, I would say, if not less than that. But um, How did we get is, to that point where we have right. a dead mouse wall of synthesis? Where did it start? Well, it started with primarily the, the mod- modular synthesis. That was, you know, like I said, they, they had these giant elaborate systems where you would patch cables and everything to, to get a sound. And you'd create a little bit of sound of that. If you wanted to change it, now you'd break that down and do something else and twisting knobs and all this. Right, but Very we're talking sort of mini Moog. How did it go from there to... Well, that, yeah, that was the next iteration, right? Because this is, you know, unless you're Keith Emerson, nobody has these on stage, right? Which he actually did, <laughs> you know, and he had his cape and everything. But yeah, prog rock. But a gentleman by the name of Bill Hemsath. Say that who five wor- times fast. No, I will not. <laughs> but Bill Hamsath was one of the engineers at Moog Music. The story goes that he actually tells the story, and you can find it online. It's actually an amusing story, but I'm going to go through it here real quickly. In his room, in his spare time on lunch breaks and things, he started experimenting with sort of leftover modular parts. 
And, and he would put together parts of what do I need? Well, I need an oscillator section and I need this. How much he could get away with to actually create something. And in the back of his office, there was what he referred to as the junkyard, where they would put leftover parts that were no longer in use, but they might use down the line. And in that room, there was a keyboard, a full 88 key keyboard mm -hmm. that served as parts for like keys that would break. And Bob Moog and, the, and everybody else presumably would take keys from that to put into other keyboards. Right. So poor Bill here was left with one of these keyboards that had 44 keys on it. Oh, that's like half. Yes. <laughs> so, but that now is what ended up on the mini mo because he put together this prototype in his office and he had 44 keys left. So he sawed off what wasn't there, put up and built a little case for it and put that together. And that became the first prototype of the mini Moog. You know what this sounds like? What does that sound like? The story of Frankenstein. Yeah, a little bit like that. Yeah. <laughs> but Spare isn't parts that really to create this thing? Yeah. But isn't that really what modular synthesis is though, in a way that you're just taking all these spare parts and putting them together. And then just like Keith Emerson, you wait for the lightning to hit the <laughs> rod just right and fire up your rig. Right? There you go. Yeah. So the last thing I want to say about but this prototype here was, because I, I think this is funny and so many things that are coming off the mini Moog are things that last today when we think of synthesis. And, and it's really, really worthy of, of this uh, recognition, I suppose. But as he put together this 44 key and the enclosure that he built with all the modules, there was spare room to, on the left side, there was a little bit of a gap. On the left-hand side. And he figured, well, I have to fill that with something. So he put in a slide on that first prototype right there. And that is what later became the mod wheel. So, there you go. <laughs> Sorry, just had so, to play that. Yeah, and I think that just by pure sort of circumstance, mm -hmm. that's now what, what we take for granted. So we owe a lot to not only Moog, but to Bill Hemsath for the main layout. And this, of course, kept getting refined with further iterations and then eventually what became the Model D, which is the mini Moog that we all know and love. That and that came, came out. out in 1971. It sure did. So again, this was a first portable synthesizer that you could actually practical way use on stage and, and became really popular. With so. only 44 keys. <laughs> yeah, but the flexibility there of not just having, you know, sort of like a, a Rhodes or or Hammond, mm -hmm. you could just the wealth the twist of, of a of, knob and you've got something very different. Yeah. And also on the the uh, Minimo, we had the pitch wheel as mm -hmm. well. So people like Chicory and stuff when they were playing, I think it was Return to Forever at this point, when they were this band, but all these early like, fusion bands where you could actually use pitch bending on a keyboard. That hadn't happened before. Sure. And now we just think that, yeah, that's that's a synth. You know, of course it is, but it all came from somewhere. So it, it's a- It all sounds yeah, like it came from the Frankensteining of Bill Hemsath. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I, I think it, it's really, really cool. Just that in that point, like at 71, 
sure, things have been refined and things, but it's still revered today, this keyboard and how it lives on in so many things that we take for granted again today with software sense and everything and everything right. is possible, right? But so many of the ideas there are still present today. Crazy how that works. In it though? What a history that you've just yeah. thrown down the gauntlet with. <laughs> it's like a moog drop, not a mic drop. Right? A moog drop. <laughs> a moog drop. Yeah. So what so, are some of the things you've you've rattled off a bunch of this stuff in the history of what's going on, but one of the important things that kind of got glossed over a little bit is it had three oscillators, all of them monophonic. Mm-hmm. Yep. They are the way you combined to create whatever kind of sound that you wanted to get. And one of the things in terms of the third oscillator that's kind of interesting that now comes maybe in some very rarefied plugins, oscillator three was able to be used as an LFO. Right. So we had, you know, you mentioned it, it's a monophonic synth, it's a subtractive synthesis, meaning that it's a low pass filter, mm-hmm. right? So you can cut off the high ends. You can combine the three oscillators any way that you choose, obviously, with, and I believe it had like six different waveforms for each one. It had triangle, had something called a shark tooth wave. Yes, saw I, can, tooth I wave. can count them out for you right now if you'd like. There's six Go for there, it. there's six there, and there's six there. Yep, there's six on all three. There you go. A lot of flexibility there as well, obviously the combination. And to anybody that is a synth player, like to roll your own patches, this is old hat to you. But obviously that, that combination would change the sound drastically. There was a noise generator. And if I'm not wrong, and I don't think I am, there was both white and pink noise. So the changes a little bit of the sound. And like you mentioned there, Jody, while there wasn't a sort of dedicated modulation section, you could use the third oscillator as an LFO. Mm-hmm. And the routing that was essentially hard routed into the mod wheel, right? So turn up the mod wheel and you add oscillation to the filters and things. So, Or in Bill's case, the mod slider. Yeah, I don't think that the, uh, actually not sure where that was added, if that was on what I assume would be model B or C where they came in, but they were definitely on the production models where the mod wheel was there. So early on with all that kind of stuff, we had also one thing that they did, people a lot of times speak of the filters of the, the Moog in general, how they had a certain sound to them. And one thing that you could do with these is that it actually had a headphone out on the synth. And that was something that players That's so you used. could play for yourself? <laughs> well, there was that, right? You could do that. But also what people could do in a live situation was, I mentioned in the past, I think how, not in this episode, but when we talked synthesis, but you actually had to tune these synthesizers because the parts were not super consistent, so the pitch would drift. Sure. So what you could do live is if you notice that the keyboard is starting to drift, right? You put on your headphones and you can tune the synth without it, you know, being live as it were, right? So you can tune it, then get back to playing. Another thing that you could do with that, because there were external inputs on the backs of these, where you could feed the output of the headphone back into the synth and overdrive it somewhat. So mm. you could get this kind of like nice and yeah, overdriven sound with them. So th- that contributed to 
what we tend to call like a gritty kind of warm sound or that kind of thing. So all these little tricks that, that people could do with them as well. Now the big drawback, and this is something again that CJ mentioned. Yes, he did. When he talked about his. No presets, baby. No presets. What you dialed up is what you had. What, well, you I'd be willing to, well, I would be willing to bet that no two of the Model Ds sounded exactly the same with the same settings, just because I, of the part inconsistency and such. And as CJ mentioned, he has notebooks full of what I would assume to be pre-drawn out layouts of the Mini Moog. And you'd draw in, I guess, by scratching, like, this is where I set this dial. This is where I set that dial with a little tick of your pencil or your pen or whatever it is that you used so that you knew exactly how to get as close to that original sound as you could at a future date. Yeah, Which, absolutely. So, I mean, that's, that's a time-consuming process right there. Yeah, but that's the same thing that people used to do on boards and stuff too, right? Before recall, mm -hmm. th there was somebody in the studio had to write down that this is the mix that we did and this is where the EQ settings were. So this that's is just where how I was stored today. Where that was set. Yeah, every somebody was a gigantic note taker in the past. Yeah, <laughs> and if you didn't do your job right, you were probably in trouble. Or fired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, it, you know, it comes a long way and it's kind of funny how we take for granted now that uh, by a synth is supposed to have 5,000 patches in it, right? <laughs> but, but just that, it, yeah, it took a while for that to be, and I, I believe it was with the Prophet 5. It's the first one where you could actually store patches. I could be wrong about that, but I think it was, yeah, the Prophet, where you could start actually storing patches for, for recall. Right on. Well, speaking of profits, let's take a word from our sponsors. And we're back. And instead of just talking synthesis, now we're going to talk about the artists that helped make the Mini Moog D what it is today. So what, what are some of those artists, Jody? Well, things that come up in my mind outside of C.J. Vanston. Right. <laughs> Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. Yeah. It's a big one. The yeah, Mahavishnu Orchestra. Another gigantic one. Lots of those kind of progressive artists did that. Maybe not so much as a known fact, Bob Marley made use of this thing. Yeah. And then other things that came even a little bit later in the more of the synth pop world, you've got Kraftwerk and guys like Gary Newman. And boy, yeah. Gary Newman sure made that thing sing. And it's interesting there how, you know, after sort of flourishing under all these progressive artists, right? Like Keith Emerson and stuff, how it sort of kind of went out of favor a little bit, but then, you know, towards the end of the 70s, how it became essentially created synth pop. Like right. you mentioned, like with Kraftwerk and Gary Newman and how the traditional band setup kind of changed and it could be just done with synthesizers. So that's Interesting. And obviously, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention a lot of the funk bands from the 70s and stuff like Parliament and Funkadelic and all that kind of stuff. Just really, really influential. Use of it too. You know, and I would like to probably think that, well, not even probably think, it's Stevie Wonder also. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As yeah. Well. I mean, there's some pretty amazing songs that he's done that are all done on stuff like that. This brings up a memory of mine. Go for it. While attending Musicians Institute with the infamous Carl Schroeder. 
Oh, yeah. Love Carl. <laughs> Everybody yeah. that's met Carl loves Carl. Yes. So he would all, my favorite thing about Carl is he would stand up at the board writing whatever it is that he was going to talk about or discuss that day in class. And he'd be muttering and mumbling and swearing under his breath every time he did it. But one of the things that he talked about was the cycle of music and how a genre or a style of music starts. Generally speaking, it starts out very simplistic. Mm -hmm. And as it progresses over time, it gets more and more complicated. And I'd like to think that in terms of how the mini Moog came about, it came about out of simplicity. Yeah. But it could end up doing some very complex shit right. in terms of like how you could create the sounds. And when you talk about these genres and how they die out for a bit and then something comes along to replace it, that was all part of that discussion that he had one day in class about how genres come and go. And they get to a point where they get so overly complicated that the average consumer can't take it anymore and they stop listening. And that's probably why it dies out. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good observation. And we see that obviously with with – Musical trends and everything. Right? They, they happen like a, a whole lot faster now because there's so many breakdowns of so many genres that are happening that these occur much quicker now than they used to. Right. But then, you you know, if you take that and look at it like the, the 70s where you had bands like Pink Floyd and, and Yes and Emerson, Lake and Palmer, all these sort of progressive kind of bands that have taken it to, you know, the, it's well, sort they of were, like that intelligentsia level, right? You have to be a little smart to kind of get our music type of thing, right? Yeah, and maybe, then you have but the, when you think about the concept of Pink Floyd, a lot of the times some of those tracks that they had where it's just a synthesizer running <laughs> and they're just tweaking that, knobs yeah. and they're just fucking around. And that's right. what ended up getting recorded. So is it intelligentsia? I don't know. How many takes did they do to get that? Or did they just like say, ooh, that's kind of cool. Leave that. And then move on. You don't but, know. Yeah. But what I'm thinking about there is sort of like the song concept and the structures and everything. And then how that all got dealt like a death blow by punk, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the late 70s, that kind of thing. Where it just they like, got too complicated and then punk came along very yeah, simplistic can, and kicked its ass. And then it'll go another cycle <laughs> yes, again. Exactly. And, you know, it, then it happened with like in the metal thing in like the 80s, everything was real technical. And, and then it came boom, back to in the 90s to where and, you've got yeah. hip hop coming up and Nine Inch Nails where they take it back to a more simplistic approach and they bring back the concept of the sound of like the mini Moog and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's an, an important thing that, that we— And I feel like I keep saying that wrong. Moog, not Moog. Moog, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I always used to say Moog for the longest time sure. until I, hear, I heard Bob Moog say his name. Yeah, and I'm going to assume that he's pronouncing his name right. So it's actually <laughs> One Moog. Would <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, you mentioned you know hip-hop and things. And I sometimes wonder how people like Dr. Dre— used the the model D extensively, at least early on in his career. And I wonder how much of that is that he was actually searching for that sound versus that these instruments now were available at a much lower price point because th there was a nobody was using where, it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, nobody was using it because, again, 80s had happened and MIDI implementation and digital synthesis and all this kind of stuff. 
Nobody actually wanted these at one point, which sounds mm -hmm. weird to say now because they fetch like up to fifteen thousand dollars. You can right, buy a car for one, one of these things. <laughs> right. Again, reinventing it and becoming a sound of something. I've heard Trent Reznor say that his first album, Pretty Hate Machine, any bass on there is the mini Moog. Mm -hmm. You know, so Moog. it kind of goes through. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We mentioned Parliament. You know, their song Flashlight. La da 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 da. Oh, what a melody that was. <laughs> right? It's so you know, unforgettable. Anyway. Right. Gary Newman. Yes. Our friends Electric. Again, mm -hmm. there we mentioned Dr. Dre, Pink Floyd again, Shine on You Crazy Diamond. I believe that's. Gary a, Newman also did Here in My Car, right? Or is it called Cars? Cars. Yeah. Cars. Oof. Yeah. But, but yeah. Solid, massive hit for that guy. Absolutely. So, you know, all over the place, and it's still around. They don't make them anymore, but they are. If you have one, hold on to it. If you're in the position where somebody's <laughs> at a garage a sale, don't know the what they have, and go, <laughs> right. yeah, hey, you want this? Yes. Yes, I do. It's a great way to pick up gear. I've done it in the past. Yeah. Who makes them now, Jody? Mostly software people. Or people that are tinkerers. I'm just kidding. Well, the initial run of these things, made by Moog, started in 1970 and ran to 1981. And then they kind of fired it back up for about a year from 2016 to 2017. So you could get an official one from the originators. However, other companies that make them now, there's not many. One of them is Behringer. And yeah. They, and that they call theirs the Model D. Yeah, Which fancy that. But that's again straight from Moog. Uh, I don't think there's any licensing going on there, but I think that's part of Behringer's business practice. But <laughs> let's not touch on that because uh, that will make me upset. All right. um, so software-wise, yeah. there's a whole lot of them. There's a fair bunch, but there's not as many as you would think, just straight-up emulations. The first one that I think of is from Native Instruments, and that's mm -hmm. their Monarch. Right. And that is obviously, I don't think that's licensed, but you can pretty much tell like the monarch, it's the, yes. the king of synth, right? Monophonic synth. So that's a really, really nice one. I know that uh, G Force Michel Jarre. Oh, you're going on with is a player. A, yeah, well, he, he likes them. And I'm not going to argue with anything that Jean Michel Jarre <laughs> has to say about synthesis. So, well, why would you? Uh, yeah, exactly. You Another mentioned G Force? Yeah, yep, G Force. They make the mini monster. Which almost sounds like a, a takeoff of Ed Sheeran's Chewy Monster, which is actually not a synth, but the G Force Mini Monster is their version of the Mini Moog. Yeah, Moog. and that that one's been around for a bit. So I think the demos and things I've played with it, it's starting to show its age a little bit. Uh oh. Yeah, you know, uh, interface and things, and mm -hmm. I noticed. But anyway, I digress. It, it it's out there. Archuria, they make their Mini version two, which is their take on the Minimo. And by well, all accounts, that's a really, really good one. Yeah. That's actually, in a sense, the, the their business models, they do a lot of recreations of older software, things of that nature. Yeah. So um, that would make sense. Then there's also yep. Universal Audio with their new DAW, or relatively new DAW, called Luna. You can get the Minimoog as an additional software instrument inside Luna is not extensively cheap, but it is officially licensed from Moog, and it was also co-developed with Moog. So you know that thing is going to sound pretty darn close. 
to the original. That's going to be pretty darn accurate, I'm sure, yeah. I wonder if it even goes out of tune. That would be hilarious. <laughs> I have no idea. I have not picked it up yet. So. Let, let's hope it doesn't because that, right, that would that be would annoying. Suck. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but even on, on some of the uh, emulations, I believe you can actually tune them or detune them as it were. And not just the individual oscillators, but, but the right. synth as a whole, if you're going for a real recreation. The overall thing with the Minimog, I think that is the big takeaway for me is not only did it sound good and effectively started the synth revolution in music, if you will, but how many things from the original that are actually present on synthesizers today? Yeah. The, the multiple oscillators, the filters, you know, where we had filter envelope, the what they called the loudness envelope, which is now, of course, just, you know, the amp envelope, right? Mm -hmm. And some, some things were different, but everything, I should Modulation, say Modulation, pitch wheels, both those things. Yeah, the mod and the pitch wheel. But also, now obviously with the routing, we can do a lot more today with different modulation sources and assign mm -hmm. them to different things and a lot easier. But how so much of the basics were already there. So with that, I think it's a fantastic synth to, if cut it's your, your first on. synth. Yeah, exactly. Or is it cutting your sawtooth on? Or, <laughs> or your shark uh, yeah. tooth for that matter. I'm sorry, I'll show myself out. Uh, but uh, because of its simplicity, but still being very flexible, it, it's a great way to kind of learn synthesis to, to sort of start rolling your own patches and stuff. Just like CJ mentioned, how you had to roll your own patches because yeah. there was no patches to do. So it's a great one today to learn synthesis on because it is straightforward. And it still sounds awesome. Be Go get originator. yourself a mini Moog if you can. Yeah. Yes. All right. And with that... I want you to shine on like a crazy diamond and give us your Friday find. I see what you did there. Nicely yeah, played. Nicely you. played. Well, uh, I discovered Buxom Betty. Oh, what's she and looking like? <laughs> she works down at the body shop. No, <laughs> the Friedman Buxom Betty from Plugin Alliance, a new amp sim. And as mm. I like to say, my name is Chris. And I have a problem with amp sims. Uh, <laughs> it's a great sounding one that floored me. And of course, Plugin Alliance being the masters of email marketing, I bought one <laughs> and I love it. So yeah, that's my find for this Friday, the Friedman Bucks and Betty from Plugin Alliance. What about you, good sir? Well, I'm not going to jump on your bandwagon, but I did. I actually bought the same damn amp sim. <laughs> See, you told you it's good, right? <laughs> it is. I bought one other to go with it. But yes, uh, I, I agree with your pick of this week. However, my pick for this week is not that. My pick is Mini Moog Model D for iOS by none other than Moog Music. Now, cool. I believe the actual app in and of itself is free. And if you want to get a little... I don't think it is now. Really? I think it was at one point. Well... Uh, hard to say because when I tried looking it up in iOS, since I already own it, it just says get. It doesn't say a price. But it does show that you can buy additional patches, unlike mm. the original, <laughs> right? for a couple bucks each. And they have like plethora of categories that you can do in-app software purchases for uh, additional presets. 
So. That, that's really cool that they've actually ported that for iOS devices. Yes, that, it is. That's, it's that's it's awesome. a lot of fun. That is my pick for this week. Very cool. But don't sound so excited, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, that's why I was playing it during the show. Sorry. Exactly. Anyway, while we've got your attention, we ask that you go to InsideTheRecordingStudio.com and sign up for our mailing list. You'll get weekly reminders about our Tuesday tips when they come out. And we'll make sure that you don't miss any future episodes. If you send us an email at goldstar, G-O-L-D-S-T-A-R, at insidetherecordingstudio.com with the word Moog, spelled M-O-O-G, in case you don't know, you'll get something cool back in your inbox. If you have a topic of suggestion for us to explain in a future episode, contact us at the contact page, and we'll put it into consideration for a future episode. With that, I'll say see you next week. Have a good one, Jody. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs>